to chapter 9. We're only going to look at the first five verses this morning, but I am going to read the first 24 verses to get this in our mind and prepare us for what's ahead in the weeks to come. So if you would, please stand for the reading of God's Word. This is the Word of God. I am speaking the truth in Christ... I am not lying, my conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit, that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart, for I could wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen according to the flesh. They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law the worship and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who's God over all. Blessed forever. Amen. But it is not as though the word of God has failed, for not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. And not all are children of Abraham, because they are his offspring, but through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said. About this time next year I will return, and Sarah shall have a son. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, Not because of works, but because of him who calls. She was told, the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? Oh, by no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then, it depends not on human will, or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then, he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. Well, you will say to me then, well, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory? Even us whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. This is God's word for God's people. You may be seated. Well, we've been looking these past few weeks at at God's, God's plan of salvation. Emphasis, God. His plan of salvation. And the fact that man doesn't make salvation certain. Only God does. Your salvation is certain because of God, not because of you. And we thank God for that. There's no created thing, the scripture says, that can separate us from the love of God in Christ. And that love is a specific love. It's a unique love. And to be loved with God with a salvific love is to be in Christ, His Son. Created things may come against you but they cannot separate you from God's saving love. This we see in Romans 8 and verse 39. Nothing will separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord, including Satan, who will have his end according to God's will, and that is the lake of fire. So thus far, Paul has been unmistakably clear over the matter of salvation and its eternal certainty. You see, we're not Christians because we feel like Christians. 
And you should thank God for that because you don't always feel like a Christian. So we're not Christians because we feel like Christians. We're not Christians because we have affectionate feelings towards Christ and his gospel or that we feel close, intimate connection to the Lord Jesus Christ himself. That's not why you're a Christian. You are a Christian only because we have been claimed by the grace of God. Claimed. Purchased. Owned. And that's defined for us back in chapter 8, verses 29 and 30. If you take a look there. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. Those whom he justified, he also glorified. So not feeling like a truly forgiven sinner, redeemed by the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ, is not the determinative factor that validates the reality of salvation. The word of God is. And this is what Paul is is communicating through these chapters. Romans 8, and now he goes into Romans 9, 10, and 11, communicating this very same truth. That is the predestinating elective purposes of God. Now, let's be honest. When the terms predestination and divine election are used from a platform like this, shivers go down the spine of many people. Some people say, you know, predestination and election are are fine for the theological classroom, but they have no place in the pulpit. Or they may say, that's okay to study those things at home in private, but it's really not for the preaching platform. But those kinds of attitudes are unbiblical and they're based on a lack of understanding about what the Bible teaches with regard to divine election. And understood biblically is the finest, warmest, most joyous teaching of the whole Bible. Now, some of you may be visiting for the first time and right now you're thinking, oh boy, here we go. Here's one of these guys that all he preaches about is divine election, predestination, and on and on. That's not all I preach about. Some of you may be visiting for the third time in a row, and you say, well, that is what you've talked about for the last three weeks. (laughs) But it's coming from where? The text. It's coming from the text. So I want to respond on behalf of the body here so that if you leave with them and you go, man, is that all you talk about? Let me respond on behalf of this beloved, beautiful, wonderful body of the Lord Jesus Christ. All we're doing here is what we normally do every week, and that is work through books of the Bible verse by verse. It's called expository preaching. Read a verse, explain it, and move on to the next. Sometimes we spend more time on a verse or two or so, but we're reading it and explaining it. We've been in Romans for almost a year now. Did you know that? Almost a year. Next week, I think, is a year. How time flies. And I I trust that you have been built up and edified through the teaching of Romans. Paul's masterful exposition of the whole of Scripture to build up the saints for the glory of God. Now, if we, like many pastors I know, refuse to talk about predestination and election, then I can't talk about Romans 9, 10, or 11, (laughs) or Romans 8, 29, and 30. You just have to black it out of the Bible and jump to chapter 12. We don't do that, and we will not do that. Because, see, this is what Romans 9 is all about. There's no secret agenda here. I have no motivation other than expounding the simple truth of God. So we skip nothing. Now, it's interesting. I heard one pastor, when he got to Romans 9, he gave a little word to visitors. And he said, look, and I'm quoting, I'm here to convince you I'm here to persuade you of these truths so you might as well be prepared. So if you don't want to listen to somebody who's already been persuaded of this position, now's the time to shut your ears. However, if you want to hear the word of God, take your fingers out of your ears and listen. End quote, hear, hear. 
Now, if you're looking for answers to questions like, how can God choose some and pass over others? That's a question. Or, how can we possibly think that God would deliberately pass over some while choosing others? Another question. Is, can God then be fair in salvation? Or, if God chooses and elects, doesn't that make us robots and it means our choices don't matter? If you're looking for biblical answers to those hard questions you've entered the right place because there's no place in the Bible that deals with those questions more systematically or comprehensively than chapters 9, 10, and 11. So we're about to go on a great journey. Whether we like it or not. You see, you're not called to, to necessarily like this glorious doctrine, but you are called to accept it. Because it's God's word. These truths that we're about to delve into are in no way difficult to understand. They're only difficult to accept. God does not require you to have the mind of a scholar to understand these glorious truths, but only the grace of God in the heart to accept them. I've had testimony after testimony, people who've met me at the door. They've been here for three, two, three, four years. And, and say, just in these past weeks, it finally clicked. It all just makes sense. With tears in their eyes, rejoicing over what the Holy Spirit, imparting grace to their hearts to embrace these truths. To that we say, amen. You see, in Romans 9, we're, we're entering the deep end of the pool. And this is where the big kids swim. When I was just a young fella, a friend of mine invited me to go swimming at the YMCA and his mama was going to pick me up and take us to the pool and my mom said no and I begged and begged, please let me go swimming at the Y. 50 cents, free swim all afternoon. Finally, because I hadn't had swimming lessons yet, she said, finally, I'll let you go, but you must give me your word. You will stay in the waiting end of the pool. I'm like, okay. So we go to the YMCA, and my buddy is off. He gets to do whatever he wants. He's off in the deep end of the pool with a paddleboard. So I grabbed the paddleboard and jumped into the deep end of the pool, went back home, and my mom said, asked, did you stay in the waiting end of the pool? I couldn't lie. I said, no, Mama. I jumped. I wanted to be where the big kids were. So I got swim lessons, and I was able, able to go with the big kids. This is where the big kids swim. There's no waiting here in Romans 9. This is the next weighty section of Romans. And then we'll take another turn when we get to chapter 12. And that is the application throughout the rest of this epistle of everything you, you've learned in the first 11 chapters. And then by that time, someone will probably accuse me of preaching sanctification according to law or some crazy thing. We're simply teaching through the word of God. Amen? The doctrine of God's sovereignty... Sovereign election is not a mysterious doctrine. It's not hidden. You don't have to go try to find it. It's not obscure, not whatsoever, but it's clearly visible from Genesis to Revelation. And be that as it may, we have a natural hostility towards the sovereignty of God's grace. Or as one theologian put it, a built-in allergy towards sovereign election a built-in allergy towards this glorious truth. And this condition of our fallen nature, it's not remedied the moment you're converted. For some Christians, it takes a long time for them to actually embrace what the Bible teaches with regard to sovereign election. And consequently, most believers fight to find a way to escape the full impl implications of this glorious doctrine. Although it's clearly defined all throughout scriptures, most predominantly here in Romans 9, many simply avoid it. Others, they ignore it. And some come, some come to it uh, arguing that God is not talking here about individual salvation. No, 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 they say. He's rather talking about God's sovereign election of nations. Well, God begins with two individuals, doesn't he? 
He's not talking about a chosen ethnic people because if you embrace that perspective, that view, it ignores the fact that God begins with two people and Paul uses particular words in this text, in these verses that are before us, where he elsewhere applies to the salvation of individuals. Okay? So Paul clarifies that we as believers do not have the right to our own theology. Did you know that? We do not have the right to our own theology. Or even certain traditions that seemed correct. They seem correct. They seem to be the theological way. It's the word of God that must construct our theology. Always and forever. Not opinion and not even tradition itself. As good as those traditions may be. I grew up seeing and hearing certain traditions that at one point in time I began to study. I said, where do you find this in the Bible? Well, it's not really in the Bible. We just kind of glean it from, you know, Christian tradition. Well, that wasn't satisfying enough to me. And some things are, and they're fine. But there's some things I studied out and says, they're just not here. And then you're accused, well, you're rejecting our glorious tradition. No, I'm not. This is what Paul is facing right here. In verses 1 through 5, Paul now seems to be countering a charge brought against him regarding tradition and heritage. Notice, the charge goes something like this. Paul, you don't care a thing about your people. Paul, you've abandoned and rejected our own heritage. You've rejected our great and grand traditions by preaching this gospel and going to the Gentiles. What's wrong with you, Paul? You've rejected Judaism, you've rejected Israel, you've you've rejected the covenant signs, you've rejected the ceremonies, and you've turned your back on your own people, Paul. You don't care about them. That's the charge. So Paul, okay, now don't, don't, don't lose me here now, beloved. Paul, before getting to his explanation, that is, the nuts and bolts of who the true people of God are and how they become the people of God? Before he gets there, otherwise known as the hard truths of chapter 9, he says this, I want you to know, I want you to understand what I really, truly think about my kinsmen people. Let me tell you what I think about my heritage, and I want you to see my heart in the, in the matter of the gospel that I preach. So in contrast to all of these allegations, he reveals his heart of compassion, his heart of mercy. He responds to this charge of of having hostility for Israel by affirming in the most resounding way imaginable his love for Israel, his love for his ethnic people. He actually agonizes over them. There's so much we can learn from this. Especially if you love doctrine and you love theology, there is much to be learned right here. We mustn't overlook this, or we will be a bunch of prideful hypocrites. And that's the ugliest thing seen in the church. Doctrinal arrogance. Now, it's difficult, we all must admit, It's often difficult for any of us to receive a hard truth, however necessary it may be to hear it. Amen? Amen. But there's a much better chance of hearing it if it's told to us in love. That's what Paul does. Before Paul delves into the matters of hard truth, he lays bare his own heart. See, there's a great problem in our day. There's a movement called the Young, Restless, and Reformed. It's great in that young Christians are embracing the glorious doctrines of grace. They're moving away from an Arminian theology to what the Bible truly teaches. That's a great thing. That's a wonderful thing. But as I've been detecting this over the years, I see a lot of arrogance and a lot of pride. Well, just as of this week, I realize I'm not the only one. And I've been guilty of it myself, trust me. There's a book out, and it's subtitled, How to Destroy Good Theology from the Inside Out. 
And then he provides a list of ways we can mess everything up, as the author says. Here's a way we can mess everything up. Number one, become theologians instead of disciples. Number two is to love God's sovereignty more than God himself. Number three is to lose the urgency in evangelism. Another, here's one, refusing to learn from non-Calvinists. See, we don't wave the banner of Calvinism here for a particular reason because most people don't even know what it means. Calvin was 54 years in a grave when they came up with the term Calvinism. He'd probably turn over in his grave if he knew this was going on. And the reason being is that he had such a high view of God and his sovereignty. That's why they coined the term. And I agree. Amen to that. Calvin's not going to be standing at the gates of heaven to ask whether or not you've read the institutes of the Christian religion in order to get in. No, no, no. Christ will be standing there, and you'll either in him and you're out, or you're out. He's the only hope. And hopefully along the way, we've had good theology to, to groom us and to train us to see him more vividly. Amen? Another is this, the author writes, being a bunch of arrogant know-it-alls. That is the way that we can mess up a good thing. That is the way we can destroy good theology from the inside out. May we not be guilty of this, amen? Paul, master theologian, the apostle of apostles here, before he delves into these deep matters of truth, he lays open his heart. This is what we want to glean for the rest of the sermon in application to our own lives. Point number one, Paul has a heart of grief for the lost. A heart of grief. Verse 1, I'm speaking the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. Here, Paul opens with a solemn declaration to prepare his hearers. Very wise. Because he is out to, he's about to unfold some very heavy teaching about the Jews, of which he was one. Heavy teaching. And writing, if you recall, to a mixed audience in Rome, a church made up of Jews and Gentiles, he wants to make clear that he writes with great affection and even through his own tears. This is how he pens this letter. So this is not a letter from Paul or a sermon from Paul rooted in hostility or resentment towards those who most vehemently opposed him, that is, the Jews, but rather he writes with tears. Speaking, he says, as one in Christ, he speaks the truth of Christ. And for that reason, Paul says, my conscience bears witness in the Holy Spirit. I'm telling you the truth. Here's my heart in the matter. My conscience bears witness in the spirit that I have no other agenda than that which the Lord Jesus has for me. And then he introduces this portion of the letter as one who is in pain, one who is grieved over his ethnic kin, the Jews. He loved his fellow Jews. He was deeply concerned with their well-being. And when they rejected Jesus Christ as their Messiah, he was filled with great sorrow and unceasing anguish in his heart. This is anguish and grief that all of us who are in Christ can most certainly identify with. We have loved ones who are not saved. We have loved ones and friends who are hostile towards the gospel. We have loved ones and friends that are apathetic towards the gospel. The proper response for every, anyone who's in Christ is a heart of grief. Now, we entrust ourselves to the sovereignty of God. We entrust them to the sovereignty of God, but it shouldn't remove the grief. Even Jesus wept over Jerusalem. Amen. This is care. This is concern. 
of the great apostle. This is not lazy, apathetic disengagement or disinterest that where one raises his hands and says with regard to those who are lost, hey, hey, they're lost and only the grace of God can save them. Is that true? Yes, that's true. Only the grace of God can save them. Well, then my evangelizing isn't going to determine whether or not they're going to be saved. Not necessarily. But evangelizing the lost is God's means to his end. No Christian should have this attitude. If they're God's chosen children, they'll come around. I don't need to evangelize. I don't need to support missions. I don't need to be grieved over the lost. He's going to do what he's going to do. That's a very immature perspective. To respond like that is the result of becoming hyper-covenantal or hyper-Calvinistic. May we be hyper-nothing. You can be a hyper-lover of Christ. That's good. Speaking of Israel, Paul says, I am motivated in this matter. I am motivated by deep sorrow. I'm motivated because of unceasing grief. I'm not motivated by the doctrine of sovereign election, which I'm going to get to, Paul says, but because of grief. And here in verses 1 and 2, Paul's grief shows us the posture that we ought to have to those who are unbelieving both in the world and unbelievers in the church. And don't fool yourself. There are unbelievers who grow up in the church. Great sinners in the world, not saved. Great sinners, part of the church, not saved. So that's our first point, is a heart of grief for the law. Second point, notice his heart for mercy of the lost. This is really heavy. You think the doctrine of sovereign election is heavy? Look at this. For I could wish, verse 3, that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. Boy, what do we see has happened to the Apostle Paul between the Damascus Road and Romans 9? He goes from an arrogant Pharisee and persecutor of the church to a called apostle, persecuted because of Christ. Wow, what a transformation. Assaulted. By the Gentiles. Remember his experience in Derby and Lystra from the Gentiles. And most certainly from the Jews. 2 Corinthians eleven twenty four. Five times, Paul says, I received at the hands of the Jews the 40 lashes less one. Verse 26, in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people. Hey, listen to this. He wishes that he were accursed for the sake of these, his kinsmen, the ones who persecuted him. And at this point are persecuting him. What a heart. That's a heart of mercy. So Paul's language here is not unfamiliar to us. If you're familiar with Moses and his ministry, God was about to pour out his wrath on Israel. And Moses prayed, Lord, pour out your wrath on me instead. You have a heart like that? If, Paul says, they could be saved by my being cursed, I'd give up my salvation for them. That's what he's saying. There's many things I would do in order to see my friends and family saved. This ain't one of them. (laughs) Now, I, I just don't think this kind of love resonates in me. To be honest... Now, I thought through this this week. I says, okay, what if my wife or my children weren't saved? Then, then I would have to say maybe. But knowing what hell is and knowing the wrath of God and what it is, that's what hell is, is the wrath of God. It's like, ooh, I don't know. <sighs> I don't know. But this is Paul. He says, I swear, basically, this is my heart. Paul uses the word anathema. 
That means to be delivered over to total destruction or for total destruction. So Paul reveals his heart of mercy for his own unbelieving people. And what it teaches us is that the doctrine of God's saving grace ought to be accompanied with a heart for mercy. So as much as we love the doctrine of sovereign election and predestination and God foreknowing in eternity past that he would save you, rest in that, trust in that, rejoice in that, but don't be arrogant in that. May we never be. So Paul in this passage was willing to be damned if only his own people would come come to the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. It's the same word that he uses when he writes the church of Galatia who were being hoodwinked to depart from the gospel of justification by faith alone. Galatians 1, 8, But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be damned. Accursed. Same word. This is what Paul's willing to be. This is the worst kind of curse that could be pronounced upon a human being. And Paul is willing to call down anathema, the ultimate curse, upon his own head to see them saved. You say, but wait a minute. We just read in chapter 8 that it's impossible to separate a believer from the love of God which is in Jesus Christ. And now he says, if only my people could embrace Christ, I'd be separated from Christ. He's speaking hypothetically, amen? He knows this can't happen. But this is his heart nonetheless. He's undoubtedly expressing the intensity of his love and his mercy for his lost kinsmen. Verse 1, I'm speaking the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit. So Paul's connection, Paul's passion is not of mere blood kinship, but is a bond born out of this intense understanding of Israel's historic role in redemption. That's what he goes on to communicate. It's more than just a blood relationship, but that God called this people to himself. Why? Because he wanted to. This is Israel, my elect. I didn't choose you because you were greater than all the nations. As a matter of fact, you were nothing And I chose you nonetheless. God's sovereign electing purposes. Israel. Notice what he says, verse 4. They are Israelites. And to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. Israelites. In other words, they belong to Jacob's line. Referring to a people of promise. To them, Paul says, belong the adoption. Adopted. They were adopted by God, having the high privilege of being adopted by God. What, what do you do to get adopted? Nothing. It's up to the parents who, 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 who they want to adopt. This is God's firstborn, the scripture says. It's his own possession. This Israel is his son, his people, his chosen, separated from all the nations of the world. Now, he just told us in chapter 8, this is a side note, he just told us in chapter 8 that we in Christ are sons. We're heirs. We're children of God. So again, side note, this illuminates for us the fact that two-covenant theology doesn't work. And it's not biblical. Some people believe that there's a two-covenant theology that God will save in one way Gentiles through belief in Christ and he has another plan for Jews so you can't preach the gospel to Jews because that would be politically incorrect. No, that's nonsense. There's one message. There's one gospel. Paul opens Romans. I'm not ashamed of the gospel for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes the Jew first and also the Greek. That's one covenant that saves. The only one that saves. So Paul would not and and could not accept two-covenant theology. That's why he suffered. That's why they hated him. He preached one message, one gospel, to the Jew and to the Gentile. 
but they were the original adopted sons. As the bloodline through whom Messiah would come. That's the promise. And he did, didn't he? To them belonged the glory. Notice, the glory. That is the visible manifestation of the invisible God. Doxa is the word where we, from where we get doxology. Doxology. Giving glory to God. So Israel was to shine among the nations in obedience to God. To them was given the glory and the covenants. God made a covenant with Noah. He made one with Abraham, with Moses, with David. All those covenants, beloved, were subsets to the one glorious covenant that saves. Just one. Inherited by us, but not apart from Israel. Not apart from Israel. To them belonged the law. The the law was given as a grace in itself. The law is a grace of God. It doesn't save, but it points us to the one who can save and does save sinners. The law is like a mirror. said it a hundred times. The law shows you you're messed up, but it can't fix you. Only the grace of God in Christ can. To them belonged the worship. Notice, look about world history. Read the Old Testament. Worship didn't come from the Babylonians or the Persians or the Greeks or the Romans. It didn't come from the Protestant Reformation either. The shaping of our worship to this day was born and rooted in Israel. Read the Psalms, all the Old Testament. This is where we see it. This is where we get it. And to them belong the promises, a catalog of promises, the prophetic utterances of God through sinful men, prophets, kings, priests, promises of the coming kingdom, countless promises, all of which are fully realized in who? Christ Jesus, the Lamb of God, slain before the foundation of the earth. In him you were chosen. All beginning in the Garden of the Eden, in the Garden of Eden, with that first glorious promise given to Satan. The promise to Satan. They'll be coming one who will crush your head. But in the process, his heel will be bruised. It's Christ who crushed Satan according to the word. So there's Paul's heart of grief for the lost. There's Paul's heart for mercy of the lost. And finally, we see a heart of confidence in God. Verse 5. To them, he continues, belong the patriarchs. And from their race, according to the flesh, that is, is the Christ who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. You know, Martin Luther said early on in his ministry, that we have nothing except for the legacy of Israel. It's true. Now, many of you know, later on in his life, he said some very anti-Semitic things. True. It's true. We don't worship Luther. We don't worship Calvin. We don't worship Paul. We don't worship Peter. We don't worship John. We worship Christ. These are all fallen men, not unlike us in this room. Amen? You don't throw out a theologian because he says or does something stupid. Embrace the good that he has written and spoken. Discard the rest. Anyone who's anti-Semite better recheck their Christianity. Amen? To them belong the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, through whom comes the Christ, that is God incarnate. Our faith and trust is in him. Simply put, Paul says he is God, he's always been God, and is therefore overall blessed forever. The Savior of the world. So Paul acknowledges here the redemptive privileges and advantages that were given to Israel. Great privilege. Providing this credible list of things that God has done 
to and through Israel. Most specifically, the fulfillment of all ceremonies, of the whole law, of all the prophets, Jesus Christ, Lord of glory. See, Paul's going to say these kind of privileges, beloved, are not to be presumed upon. Israel presumed upon their privileges. Many people sit in church and they grow up going to church and they hear and recite things and believe things and can know scripture, but they're unregenerate and they take for granted the privilege of growing up in a church. And kids, little kids, you are so blessed. Children, children, hello. (laughs) You are so blessed that Jesus has given you a mommy and a daddy who loved Jesus. You know why your mommy and daddy loved Jesus? Because he first loved them. You are privileged, which means, um, wow, I get to go to church. Wow, I get to go to Sunday school. That's what a privilege is. It's a blessing. Israel presumed upon God Many people grow up in the church, they presume upon God. And they miss Him. They know the gospel, but they're not saved by the gospel. They believe in Jesus, but they don't believe Jesus. They believe about Him, but they don't believe Him. It's exactly what happened here. They merely attend. So the Jews had all these privileges... But the majority had rejected Christ. So the problem aimed at Paul and his message is is this. When Messiah came to fulfill these promises, the people of God simply rejected him. In the Old Testament people of God, the children of Israel, on the whole, they rejected the solution to their sin and the sacrifice provided. They rejected it. And Paul's heart bleeds these people so they raise the question in verse 6 okay if all this is true and all this was given to Israel then how or why can this be I guess God's promises have failed then Paul no failure is never on the side of God see that in verse 6 we're not going to get there today it is not as though the word of God has failed for not all who descended from Israel belong to Israel we'll tackle that next time So the first century mystery with regard to the rejection of the Christ by the Jews is no different in our day. It's still a mystery. We'll see why in the weeks to come. I mean, the one to whom so many of their prophets pointed, they rejected him. How could it be that he could come to his own and his own what? Received him not. Right there in the Gospel of John. And Paul's answer to that question, by and large, is the pronouncement of God's sovereign will. That's where he's going. That's how he answers the question. He will go on to explain the only way to rightly understand is to understand God's individual electing love. We just read it this morning. In other words, he says the only way to understand the situation at hand, the fact that the majority of Israel has rejected Christ, is to understand that God's grace is God's choice. God's grace is God's choice. That's the hard truth that he will break down in the coming weeks. So God's saving purpose does not include all who belong to Israel in a biological sense. That's why Paul has already said something about this back in chapter 2 of Romans. Remember verse 28? For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly. The same goes for baptism in our day. Baptism isn't merely this outward physical thing that saves you. No, A Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the Spirit, not by the letter. All those who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. This we have studied. 
So in this great passage, beloved, Paul begins to explain that profound truth. He says, it's not as though the word of God has failed. Oh, no, 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 no. Simply put, not all who have descended from this ethnic people are true children of God. Just as not, just as not all without exception who are raised in the church or born into Christian families are Christian. So a distinction must be made between the two, and that's what he goes on to do. There are those born of physical lineage and those born of spiritual faith. There are those circumcised into a physical community thinking that they had inherited salvation who had no spiritual life in them. Paul understood the temptation to think like this. He was a Jew of Jews from the tribe of Benjamin. A Pharisee, the son of a Pharisee. He loved the signs. He loved the symbols. He loved the ceremonies. They don't save. And from the church, I meet hundreds and hundreds of people as you travel around and you talk to people about the gospel. They don't know the first thing about the gospel. It says, if you die, are you going to go to heaven? If you were to die today and stand before God and he were to ask you, why should I let you into my kingdom? What would you say? Many people answer this. I've been baptized. That's no different than saying, I'm a Jew. In this introduction, beloved, verses 1 through 5, he prepares us for that discussion. That's hard truth. That's the deep water. While at the same time, he reveals his heart in the introduction to the matter. Amen? We must have this heart. Because understanding Paul's heart helps us to accept this truth and shows what the truth of Romans 9 ought to produce in our own hearts. And it should be no different than what Paul communicates here in these first four verses. Not arrogance. For years, six years, seven years now, Anytime we study doctrine, I always preface, like in Thursday night doctrinal studies, guys, why do we study doctrine? Why? Not to be puffed up, but to grow down in humility, to understand more greatly, to grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ. That's why. Not to go back out into town with your chin lifted up, all prideful. We can't be like that. We must not be like that. We must be like Paul by the Spirit of God. Amen? You can learn it the easy way or you can learn it the hard way. I've learned it both. (laughs) We don't want to be stereotypical, cold, full of mold, prideful Calvinists. (laughs) Because when you understand these doctrines and embrace them, it can produce really only truly great humility, thankfulness, and joy. So I close with this quote. Philip Graham Riken. He says, quote, We respond to God's mercy by becoming merciful ourselves. Sadly, people who believe in election are not always known for their mercy. In fact, sometimes it seems like there's an ornery streak in Calvinism. But it seems that someone who understands the wonder of God's mercy would seek to become a living demonstration of it. Jesus said, Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. But you know, we could also reverse that statement and say, blessed are those who've been shown mercy, for they will be merciful. End quote. And that's rich. So I trust, beloved, that you will be helped in your faith as we work through this great chapter, the ninth chapter of Romans. If you are here for the first time, come back. Don't don't let the words predestination and election be a shiver down your spine. Because I guarantee if you keep coming and you embrace this and see this as it is, if you don't see this as it is, it will be warmth to your soul. You can be rooted in certainty with regard to the gospel that it really is all God. Amen? Growing us up in understanding and down in humility. And that's how we come to the table. We come in humility, but also with great confidence. Amen? So let us pray as we prepare 
to partake of the Lord's table this morning. Our gracious Lord and God, we pray that, uh, that we may believe your word by faith and trust in you with all our heart. Lord, the truths that are before us this morning and the truths that will be before us in the weeks to come, may we see your grace to us. And as we gather, Lord, as at your table this morning, we acknowledge your grace. May we receive the cup and the bread by faith, mindful of the heavenly mercies imparted to us through the finished work of your, of your Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. We ask these things according to the work of your Holy Spirit for the glory of the name of your Son, for it's in his name we pray. Amen. Uh, we come to the table because of God's eternal covenant faithfulness to us. So the Lord's table, therefore, is only for those whose faith and trust is in Christ alone. And this morning, friends, if you have not humbly come to Christ by repentant faith, and this is not an inward reality, I ask that you do not partake of the table. Very important, do not partake of the table. If the Holy Spirit has been working in your life, and you're beginning to believe these things, then I would love to talk to you about that, or you can speak with one of the elders. And if you are a new believer, a new convert, you need to be baptized. We'll have a baptism later this month. And then we would love for you to partake with us as a fellow believer. But you must believe to partake. And to all who love the Lord Jesus Christ this morning, who are justified by faith alone, this table shows Christ to us. This table shows the eternal security that we have in Christ. That is the Father's love for us. So we look to Him by faith and we come with both broken repentance and assured confidence. Not in ourselves, but in the worth and work of Christ alone. Amen? Let us pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for your sovereign rule. And thank you for your eternal, abounding love for us. For anyone here this morning, Lord, who's not a believer, I pray that you would take these truths and transform their hearts, transform their minds that they would become believers in the only way to be saved, and that is your Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, who lived the life in the place of sinners perfectly, upholding the law, and then laid down his life on behalf of sinners, receiving the unmitigated wrath of you, our Holy Father. Dying, descending into the grave, and ascending to your right hand, where he rules and reigns forevermore. For it's in his name we pray. Amen.